Well, hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. You can follow my adventures on tobymiller.org. And I'm here with a very old friend and much-loved friend, Randy Martin. Hi, Randy. How are you? Hey, Toby. Good to see you again. It's great to be together. And we're in one of your sort of origin myths, Southern California. Yeah. Yeah, well, this was a spot. I, I uh, started out at uh, UC San Diego as a pre-med. Oh, I knew you were a pre-med, but I'd yeah. forgotten yeah. you were at UC San Diego. Yeah, frightfully, I'm thinking nearly 40 years ago. I'm in the coffee right now, sir, OK? Yeah, thank you. So I did uh, uh, take a stroll across the campus, and it's, I would say, probably quadrupled yeah. in size. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So you grew up in Southern California, yeah. in fact. Yeah. But not in San Diego. No. You, you were an Angelino, weren't you? Yeah, I was born on Sunset Boulevard, and you know, uh, King Kong came and <laughs> swept me you off away. Yeah. to New York eventually. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're the, you were the Fay Ray of the 1980s. Really. I, I sure was. Yeah, I had longer hair. Yeah, and, you did. And nails. Actually. Yeah. You had longer hair and longer nails, <laughs> and you affected a ponytail, which I think yep. was never Fay's way. No. Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, you have to really be practical when you're scaling those kinds of heights. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the question is, I just watched the other day the newish Planet of the Apes movie. I don't know if you've seen it. No, my kids did. but I. What did did they think? See, for them, there's not yet any such thing as retro. So there's no Charlton Heston or Roddy McDowell. But then they went and saw them. The oh, other. they saw the later, the early ones, the, the, the earlier films. So, um, yeah, the the origins are always the prequel to the present for them. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's like listening to the live album and then listening to the dead album. Yes. <laughs> well, I found it extremely interesting. I was not an aficionado of the old ones, not out of any critical perspective. I just missed them somehow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I have to say, I, I really liked this thing. I thought it was extremely interesting. What was going on? Well, it's just that it it does take the point of view, ultimately, of the apes. Uh Uh, And it it is anti-corporate America, and it's anti-corporate healthcare, Uh and it's dubious about scientific testing animals. So it's both a Frankenstein myth Uh and a redux of a film, and it's well, it's ably made. Uh, It has the obligatory, ever since Goldfinger, all things must be blown up at the yes. end part, which is boring because there are so few things you can do to make it different. Yeah. I mean, apes running around the Golden Gate Bridge is something. Yeah. That's different. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's true of a lot of films, though, that, that um, the end is, is incidental to what came before, yeah. you know, so yeah. the, the fact that it ends in a way that um, stitches the piece back into convention... Yeah. doesn't necessarily allow you to dismiss everything that came before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Now, when growing up in, in Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s, was Hollywood any kind of presence for you any more than it was, do you think, for somebody growing up in San Francisco or Boulder or, or Delhi? Did it mean, did the industry mean anything, or was there less of a sense of an industry town than I think there certainly is not? Right, so the physical spot of Hollywood... Um, had already expressed a certain kind of de-industrialization. Right. 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 So um, it was, uh, you know, a, a place that that marked a decline that I think 
um, for me growing up, there was still nothing like history. You know, so this was just the beginning of something turning back away from the kind of forward march. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, it was a place marked as seedy and and um, and vacant and unknowable. And I remember being a, a, a teenager once, you know, just walking along the sidewalk and all of a sudden these a police car just drove up onto the sidewalk and threw us against the fence. You know, because you know, why would you be a teenager walking on the sidewalk? Because nobody walks in LA. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Yeah, Zappa yeah. might have said, yeah, 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 did yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was uh, criminal. And then on the other on the other side, um, so my high school was um, a, a set for uh, room two twenty two. <laughs> so and that in that practical sense of, of kind of you know virtual actual space, Hollywood was a big bother. You know, yeah. they, they would get in your way. and <laughs> I had a great experience the other day. I've now moved to downtown since oh, I got really? back from Mexico. Oh, yeah, so I'm living right on Pershing Square. I overlook Pershing Square. Oh, uh-huh. And as happens throughout LA and New York, uh, what you think of as public thoroughfares are not. Yeah. Um, they're the temporary property of the public and the abiding property of Hollywood. Yeah. And the other day I was walking down what was meant to be um, 24th Street in New York. And the new Kiefer Sutherland TV show was being filmed. Yeah. Touch. Yeah. You know the post-autism <laughs> recovery of network television. Yeah. And the largest police officer I've ever seen. I mean, he was—he must have been a Laker at some point in his past. <laughs> said to me, "Excuse me, sir, you can't keep walking along this sidewalk. That officer over there will help you jaywalk." Quote unquote. So this other officer stood in front of the oncoming traffic that was roaring down and said, I guess they'll stop for me, put his hand up in the middle of the street and ushered me over. Now, lots of tickets are given to you in downtown for jaywalking. Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it is yeah. not New York City. They yeah. were just... But here, I was given an official police escort, <laughs> courtesy of, you know, the Hollywood certification system. They'd filled out all their forms. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So that that sense of um, you know governmentality, pedestrian governmentality, uh, but I think above all, you know, it's 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 um, about the effacement of having to do having to be anywhere, right? You would just drive, you wouldn't walk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, whole swathes of the city that don't have sidewalks. Yeah. I mean, there's a grass verge of the well-tended yeah. lawn. And then there's where the cars go. There is nowhere yes. whatsoever. Yeah. There's nowhere to really to ride a bike because of the way in which they curve yeah. the streets. They're yeah. made to make sure that on the five days that it rains, yeah. the runoff you know, doesn't go anywhere near the lawns, God yeah. forbid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. It's, it, the sidewalk is something like you know, the decorated shed of the, of the streetscape. Yeah. You, you know, it's yeah. not really functional. It can't lead anywhere. If you were foolish enough to take it, you'd get lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And interestingly enough, in Hollywood itself, there are now major attempts to make it a public transport hub and a very bicycle-friendly place. There are mm. great plans for bike-friendly things. Mm. And, of course, massive kickback and protest yeah. from not-in-my-backyard Yes, people. yeah. So the other trace of something, of some other Los Angeles, you know, of the Who Framed Roger Rabbit fame, yeah, were um, the the many of the tracks were already torn up, but there were a few still of the the stations from the from the earlier transit system. When it had supposedly the biggest mass transit system in the world. Yes, I mean in terms of yeah. electric cars of and 
yeah, yeah. the expanse. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I think so. What would you like? Um, let's see. I'll get the uh, salmon bagel. And I'd like the huevos rancheros, which I had yesterday on check-in. They couldn't give me a room, but they could give me some huevos. You got, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> a few eggs for you. Anyhow, yes, so yeah. there are now only vestigial tracks in certain areas and a couple of terminus points, but in those days there were actually some vestigial station stops. Yes, yeah. yeah. Wow. Where were they, do you remember? Um, they, I mean, they were close to where I lived in Silver Lake. There were some... Uh, on, uh, that would have been uh, Glendale Boulevard, parallel to now what, what is um, the freeway, right. Route Five. Um, yeah, so that you know, it would never occur, never have occurred to me that of course this is the you know the parallel, the alternatives <laughs> in the parallel universe. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, yeah, and that's of course then also adjacent to the LA River, such as it was. Such as it is and was. Yeah, but it was an active scene for us then of, of pursuing tadpoles and you know, you know we treated it as a kind of local swamp as a playground yeah a, yeah a, a natural playground yeah yeah <laughs> nice memories yeah no it was it was uh, pretty funny but at age more or less 20 you leave southern california forever as it were is that right you go up to berkeley or have i got that wrong yeah that's right so i i uh yeah, not even. I, I spent about a year here in San Diego, um, uh, and it soon became clear that uh, medicine was not for me. And you I might marry a doctor, or you might later. Yeah, marry yeah. somebody who would later become a doctor. <laughs> yes, <laughs> through dance. Post-med. Yes. Post-dance med. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right, so I would have been, I guess, about uh, 18 when I, when I left. And I went to, to, to Berkeley, and uh, I wanted to major in urban studies, and there wasn't any undergraduate majors. I said, oh, I'll, I'll have to check something. I'll major in sociology. Yeah. <laughs> because that allowed you to think about some of these issues. Yeah, and in, in fact, um, it was a funny moment to show up in Berkeley, because it was the, um, the uh, for sale sign had just been put on the 60s. It was... Uh, that would have been 1976. Right. So the um, fraternities and sororities were just filling up again. Yeah. Uh, you know, there were some remnants here and there in People's Park. Uh, but, but basically was, what you'd come for had, had just ended. Had, had just ended. You should have been here last year, last week, last <laughs> yes, year, we just last had decade. The fire sale. All of them, yes. <laughs> right. They've been declared redundant. They turned 21 and people who want to make money just arrived. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is the, the post-Watergate uh, moment of disillusion with possibilities. Yeah. Although, the, you know, it, it reminds you, though, about how, um, how treacherous periodization is mm -hmm. as a scheme. You know, because there was still all kinds of left activity and protests and uh, various solidarity movements and... Um, oh, you could track in student yeah. newspapers and other places the end of the real Berkeley yeah. uh, at any point I suspect in at least the last 50 years yeah. I mean year by year it would be there absolutely and I think you know just as is evident with all the mobilizations around um, the dismantling the, per the permanent dismantling <laughs> it keeps coming back yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, it's not just the university, but that's a big part of it. It's the town itself. Yeah. 
isn't it? Yeah, I yeah. mean, the permanent residents are sort of Santa Monica of the North, yeah. um, and more so. Yeah. And they are basically left liberals, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Who got in on a real estate boom you know, that sustained them. <laughs> we all have our conditions of existence, yeah, even if they can't absolutely be periodized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you go up there to, to look at urban studies, and my memory from talking to you, and I sometimes these things turn out to be chronological, and this mm. so far is, but it doesn't have to remain that way. But my memory from talking to you is that you worked in a factory as part of this, or was that when you were doing your no, your uh, graduate study? Yeah, I, I, uh, I met up with this guy, Marco Borovoy, who was... Marxist ethnographer. He had, he had uh, um, been t uh, recruited by Edward Schills, who was a not a Marxist ethnographer. No, no but was confident he could he could uh, convert the young Michael <laughs> to his cause. It didn't work out, uh, but he indeed sort of reinvented Chicago sociology of of the, uh, the street corner of the street corner and the immediate experience. So he had worked in factories, so I met up with him and uh, wound up um, working in a garment factory and then in a um, paint factory, which was interesting in San Francisco because um, I would ride my in, in pursuit of uh, the, the golden comparison between big and small. I would ride my bicycle in San Francisco up to these hulking factory structures, and as I got close to them, I would see that they were, in fact, uh, deserted. <laughs> Um, and finally found this paint factory uh, that I can't imagine is there now, but you know, it was on the outskirts of the mission. Um, mm. And um, it worked there there for a bit, so yeah, those were my sort of grounding moments of, of uh, looking for revolution in all the right places. And, and resolving <laughs> the macro-micro distinction. Yes, absolutely. Structure and agency. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All in a neat 60-page paper. 60-page paper. Uh, and it, during all this, is dance becoming part of your life, or is it already part of your yeah, life? Yeah, I went, you know, uh, as I think is the, the trauma of a Southern Californian, um, you know, you, you move to the north and, and it rains on you, so you have to find ways of... Indoor fun. Yeah, so I, uh, I auditioned for the... Um, they had this uh, gorgeous space for dance, and it was uh, Martha Graham training and you know I had no basis for doing it uh, except for sexism in the end that you know there was an out pile and the last minute they put me in the in pile <laughs> so that sort of launched me on, on the dancing every day which I then pursued uh, and it was hilarious because I, I was just so ecstatic to be doing this activity I had no idea that that my body was totally misshapen for this particular form of practice, <laughs> but it didn't matter. <laughs> yeah, so there was dance, and uh, there was some, um, there was some community organizing and uh, tenant organizing. So there was still, you know, plenty of activism mm. to be in, in, involved in. Uh, Angela Davis was running for, I want to say maybe Senate. You know, so she was around uh, there. As I said, there was lots of um, st you know, with, with the with the receding of the '60s, still came the sort of fluorescence of all these micro parties, left parties. So they were all visible, you know, with their 
batons <laughs> engaging in, in street battle with each other. Um, yeah, but so it was, you know, they were uh, building occupations then, um, some of them around divestment in South Africa, so some international solidarities. So, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know that there was any scarcity of politics if you wanted some. Yeah. And I don't know whether this is retrospectively endowing things with what weren't, what was not there at the time, but in terms of your own resolution of the Cartesian mind-body split, uh, one of the things about your work is that you have written about you know, war, finance, crisis, performance, dance, Marxist theory, sports. Have those things been in dialogue, you know, when you did your work about Marx, or when you did your work about financialization, when you did your work about war and imperialism, was dance hovering or in the middle, or yeah. informing you or relaxing you? What was its place in all of this? Yeah, so it's it is interesting. You know, so I I, I, um, I did initially a few books that dealt with uh, politics and performance, and then uh, something on. Um, uh, theater in, in Cuba and Nicaragua, um, and uh, Marxist theory, and then the series of, of things on, on finance. And much of what interests me in finance is sort of undoing the opposition between production and circulation. So how is it that things move? So I think that um, that sense that uh, what is capital, what is power, what is theory, is not some kind of fixity, uh, but can be used and thought of as something that is in motion. So this project that I'm doing now is actually a mashup uh, between uh, dance and finance. Oh, is it? Can you, can yeah. you tell us about that unlikely <laughs> waltz into the vault? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you could say the conceit is that, um, you know, uh, dance and finance rhyme, but they also share a rhythm. They don't rhyme when I say them, they rhyme when you say them. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's, that, that's the benefit of, of, of growing up in a flat environment like uh, the Los Angeles well, Basin. You know, my father was a radio announcer in the early days of oral cultural imperialism, as in A-U-R-A-L, cultural yeah. imperialism, and he was announcing a song which you would pronounce, let's take a chance on a dance, and I would pronounce, let's take a chance on a dance. But because he was confused, he's, he pronounces, let's take a chance on a dance. Nice, yeah. Having a bit each way. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. any event, Absolutely. the mashup. Yeah. So um, it, it has three parts that sort of um, uh, simulate, you know, the holy trinity of the, <laughs> of the social sciences, right? So this, this fable that there are these three areas, one is called economy, the other is called polity, and the third is called culture. So um, the uh, the piece on um, on economy st uh, starts with Bernanke and Paulson's September twenty eighth uh, meeting with leaders. Now of there's the, a mashup. Yeah, there's a mashup <laughs> with with leaders of the Congress saying, you know, if we don't do this bailout, there isn't going to be any economy on Monday. So the first part is saying, what if they're right? What if Monday, that Monday comes and what we've had since is no economy? By which I mean, you know, if, if economy um, as, as a kind of uh, figure and 
series of operations has to do with separating out something called politics from something called economics on the one hand. Right? That's the moment of disembedding uh, that Polanyi talked about in the Great Transformation and what makes you know, capitalism uh, uh, distinct. And then the other thing is the conceit that uh, there's an integration of population through this thing called economy. So there's you know, room for everybody and development and progress. So it would seem that, that once you have the scope of intervention that was part of that bailout, that those two kinds of, both the separation and the integration, mm -hmm. come undone. And what interests me is that sort of what emerges from that is uh, this figure of the derivative. So the, the idea of the derivative to me is that um, it's something that no longer is about the the um, metaphysics of holes, you know, either of the masses, of whole spheres. It, it has to do with taking attributes of things, bundling them together, placing them in circulation, uh, taking what's far away and bringing it near, uh, taking what is in the distant future and making it actionable in the present. So a lot of the kind of, you know, Cartesianism of these separate spheres. Mm -hmm. you know, that, uh, Marx Habermas's conception of modernization, but also I think again the whole social science itinerary, you know, of having these differentiated sure. moments uh, starts to be undone. So sort of the, you know, I go through all of the accounts of what uh, neoclassical neoliberal economists say the economy is, and in each case sort of worry about, you know, the sustainability of those ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. Hello, you have the uh, bagel? Yeah, thanks. Huevos Venturos? Thank you. Would it be possible to get some tapatio sauce or something like of that? Of course, maybe? yeah, I'll bring some right up Thank here. you. And, and uh, some more hot water? It's more hot water. I'm happy to use the same okay. little pot and Perfect, bag. I'll bring you a new one out. And just sure. to let you know, that, uh, it is pretty spicy as well. Great. So I'll bring some for you. You'll make a happy man of it. Or the opposite. So, um, in terms of explaining the, the neoclassical vision of these things, are you talking about the neoclassical vision as it was re-enunciated, or as I guess it emerged in the 70s, or how they're trying to explain things today? Yeah, so I'm going back uh, farther to, to, to Hayek. And the, oh, right, and, so right, back to the 40s. Yeah. Yep, so that, and that moment, right, of, of its... Um, of its articulation, of the nudging aside of the institutional school of, of economics and uh, Frank Knight, which is also um, a moment where there's a relationship between risk and uncertainty, right, and a kind of Weberian balance where uh, risk can be calculated, uncertainty can't be, and because uncertainty can't be calculated, you need charismatic leaders. Thank you very much. You know, to, to kind of uh, restore order. Enjoy. So you could say that one of the things that uh, that, that uh, neoclassical turn tries to do is to um, replace decision with information, right? That's what all Shannon and a lot of the the sources of that economic theory are suggesting, and therefore um, all kinds of movements of determination can be modeled. You know, so you're getting a, a fit between to your other question. Um, the organizational structures of warfare, operations research, um, communications, communications, mathematics. Exactly. All of those models are the same. Shannon and Weaver. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How can you get perfect information to all participants? Right. 
and then that's a genealogy that that le that that does then lead from um, those initial formulations of modeling, you know, uh, both the uh, prediction of where planes are going to be so you can blow them up, but also the random walk down Wall Street. Uh, so there's a kind of fantasy, right? That there's a there's a modelability, and what what's being modeled is. Uh, um, various distances from expectation, right? And that's what risk is, right? It's a and the interesting thing about that, I've always felt, is that on the one hand, it's very functionalist, because it is trying to produce these models yep. in which uncertainty plays a part. Yep. But on the other hand, it is also about conflict. Um, the consumer-producer dance, to use that term, yep. of the fantasy of supply and demand as the major means of fixing price yep. and allocating resources efficiently is yep. a conflict-based theory of life, yep. where they're just absolutely opposed interests. Right. You know, they're like class interests yep. amongst producers, amongst consumers, and between these two mega groups. Right, huh? right. So I think... Hayek's effort to re to resolve that is to treat is to have a metaphysics called the market that is actually like a supercomputer, right? That takes all of these um, variances, modulations of information that all then get aggregated beyond the, the conflict. So it's 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 like uh, you know um, uh, conflict with with the desire of, of resolution in the form of the machine. So it's a kind of, I think, a Frankenstein. Or a deity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. But it's a, it's, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a deity that is um, rationally based, right? Because it allows you to model something, except the, what I think constant, you know, back to your point, what constantly is at the edges of all this modeling is the problem of noise. Yes, and, it, and this gets us back very much yeah. to the idea of a telephone call yeah. as the basis for a lot of this stuff, yes. right? Yeah. How do you create a machine that enables pure communication between mm -hmm. the different persons who are on either end of it? Mm -hmm. And part of that is getting rid of what is seen as distortion, mm -hmm. which is what those the people you're talking about, like Shannon, termed noise because they really thought about this. How can we make this as simple as possible? We want it to be right. a thing that is sent, a thing that transmits it, a person who sends it and a person who receives it. We want as little interference from the bits in the middle as possible. Right. Yep. So that gets turned around in the early 70s when Fisher Black, who was a student of um, you know, all of these trajectories and of, of wine and of others, um, and is the author of the Black-Scholes model, which is the means of pricing derivatives, um, writes a paper in 1973 that is uh, talking about the, that, that, in fact, it's not information but noise that is the generative source. And um, uh, noise then has to do with the kind of whole, you know, it, it is, as if he had uh, stumbled onto post-structuralism and had to make it make it up all by himself. Uh, so suddenly you get this inversion where um, the all of the signaling creates all of this interference where you can't really tell what's real information and what's noise, um, and you would only know after the fact. Um, and so that kind and of a mixture of Don DeLillo and the United States Supreme Court. Yeah, 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 
So, you, so that, of course, is also happening at the same moment of the, as the breakup of Bretton Woods. I think the, uh, of the, uh, talking about the, the Los Angeles stories, the, the initial version of, of real estate collapse, the loss of currency sovereignty. So you're getting this. The figure. end of price controls, yeah. or the imposition, the imposition, and then the end of price controls. Yes. Yeah. Now, here comes the gutter materialist in me. There is a, if there is a thing called the real political economy, mm -hmm. then there's no doubt that these sorts of ideas, particularly the, the new provenance of Hayek and the advent of Friedman, mm -hmm. uh, are good ways of converting entire economics departments in universities, uh, trashing the career of the labour beat journalist, mm -hmm getting rid of industrial or labor relations machinery as a democratic institute to the extent it ever was. Mm -hmm. Namely, that Keynesianism appears to fail. Mm -hmm. The idea of the trade-off mm -hmm. between unemployment and inflation mm -hmm. fails mm -hmm. at just this moment. Right. Um, and you know, we go from Nixon more or less saying we're all Keynesians now, right. even if he may not have welcomed that. Yep through to, literally, you talk to economics people who graduated in 1971, that was the truth and they learnt it and it was science. Right. You talk to them, talk to people who graduated five years later and they don't even know what it is. Yep. Yep. I mean, it is absolutely scrapped, isn't it? As a, and it isn't a response to the failure of what was seen from uh, Bretton Woods for 30 years as the levers that allowed mature economies to be controlled essentially yep. at a macro level by, by governments. Yep. Yep. So I think, to me, the paradox of that flip, because it gets narrated on the left as neoliberalism where markets you know, achieve an autonomy independent of government intervention, is that that left formulation in some ways c conceals the abiding materiality of the relationship between um, state and economy. That to say, um, monetarism, the need to, to constantly be adjusting uh, interest rates in anticipation of an inflation to come. Right? So it's a it's a preemptive kind of a strategy towards economy, and of course, what's driving that is the the specter of lowered unemployment, which would drive up wages, which would increase inflation. In actuality, means that there's far more activist presence. Of course. You know, of government and state, you can trace this through you know increasing numbers of regulations. Through, you know, but you can also, I think, trace it talking about materialities and um, in terms of a whole series of, of changes towards domestic population, which are organized around war. Right, so you get wars on drugs, wars on youth, wars on culture, wars on science, and eventually the war on terror. So this, this, which in some ways is about the um, elimination of, from a population management point of view of the distinction between domestic and foreign, right? Anybody could be a terrorist and you have to do the same preemptive thing um, that you do with respect to controlling inflation. And at risk youth. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, the the 1983 report that's meant to eliminate the Department of Education and therefore that kind of Keynesian model, right, of, of development, uh, a nation at risk, treats low-performing young people as a as a security threat, right? And then we see that tracing from um, a nation at risk in 1983 to No Child Left Behind, which is also a military metaphor, right, of not leaving your buddy in the field uh, behind. 
and that kind of uh, militarization, which, which in which, in, in coercive terms and in terms of the body, right, that at-risk category means that you have to constantly attack in a kind of moral panic sense the, the rising specter of an at-risk population, and that's sort of the same figure you get with the subprime. But isn't the militarization of everyday life in the United States Keynesianism by stealth? I mean, it is, it is a way of yep. allowing southern states to survive, as far as I can tell. Sure. As reasonably competent entities. Yep. So, and of course, this is what I think generates the flip between the Democrats and the Republicans, because the, the Democratic Leadership Conference, which emerges in response to the Reagan landslide and gives you a Clinton, was about the undoing of the Democrats' uh, stranglehold on the post-Civil War South. So that be it becomes a Republican um, arena in which now whiteness becomes something that has to be uh, in a new form of contention, you know, as, as it's in decline. Um, so I think that that also means that there's all kinds of warrings around uh, what kinds of populations can be regulated if there's a shrinking space of, of government, of governance, of entitlement. And so you're getting also this shift from uh, defined benefit citizenship to defined contribution mm -hmm. citizenship. And for me, that's the big distinction between the, the, the kind of cleavage of population between the at-risk and the risk-capable. And so that's, you know... The that. rational consumer and the irrational consumer, the person who will invest properly in human capital. Yeah versus the person who you know, becomes a drug addict because they don't realize that in proper Weberian terms they have to defer their yeah. satisfaction. Exactly, and so that's, that is driving, I think, the, the increased uh, Keynesian uh, coercive uh, moment away from the Gramscian uh, version of consent as having a material basis that you kind of spread around. And I think for California, a lot of the, that means that one of the roles that government has to play is to protect people against the vagaries of the market. That's the, I think, the re-inscription of what the, the 1979 Prop 13 tax revolt is. It's really a, it's a, it's a plea that government protect consumers from a, a market run wild. So I think you can sort of reread a lot of these things that are named as, as neoliberal um, departures of government, of state, from yeah. economy as a, as a reinscription in other terms yeah. and the need for heightened intervention. So if that's Absolutely. the case, if, if we're sort of rereading the, the post Bretton Woods fall and the advent of this particular dominance of finance has something that drives the implication of politics and economics more closely together. And then there's a paradox, I think, that the, the whole figure of neoliberalism turned out to, you know, sort of have the facts right and the story wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's a massive mythology that claimed as a natural basis a fiction that it argued it was serving, mm -hmm. but in fact was manufacturing and the manufacturing was only one part of an expanded governmental role, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. always denied as being so. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, well, I guess Paul Krugman's got to step aside now and we'll take over his column, maybe his chair at Princeton, his prize for being under 40, 
and is no bell. I think we've solved it and yep. we're away. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I think um, I'm prepared to share this and have you as first author. Well, the problem, Toby, is we would have had to have a prenup agreement on that. Yeah. You know, given the size of the of the super lottery, it's what up. It's up over five hundred million. So, you know, if we didn't figure that out beforehand, I'm I'm happy just to hand you the credit. You take the column and the Nobel, <laughs> and I'll um. I'll just cancel the train to, to, to Princeton, and I think that will make life a lot easier. <laughs> Let me ask you something in this about a topic that particularly fascinates me, which is quantitative easing, mm. or in a sense the printing of money, mm -hmm. which as we all know is the key tool allegedly of monetarism, mm -hmm. we also know is the stick that is used with which to beat uh, states that are alleged, allegedly you know, irresponsible right. because they print money, right. and is also the device whereby cuts in um, fiscal intervention by the state uh, are safeguarded in terms of their potential impact on big corporations mm -hmm. through manipulation of the money supply to make certain that those corporations who are massively reliant on the system pay very small amounts in interest. Right. Where does this figure in the whole thing? Right. So, I mean, one of the things that fascinates me about the, the, the bailout is you, you have to think about how, how, first of all, what did it mean to suddenly be able to say against all these notions of scarcity and Malthusian growth anxieties that underwrote the Keynesian project. You know, we want growth, but we know there are limits, so we have to do something to kind of defer um, the, the accounting. We'll talk about what, what, what will be um, registered as a national economy, uh, but it is still a system. It's a machine. It's closed, right? So there's a kind of finitude. So all of a sudden you get with the bailout the sense that my goodness, we can leverage the entire U.S. tax base of $14 trillion to these banks. And that means putting in circulation of, of value before it's actually been realized in economic um, productive activity, right? Which again was that kind of Keynesian growth model. GDP assumes that you, do the, you press add after the fact. Right, so the bailout is about saying, no, we can actually extend all these lines of credit. And that would include, of course, printing money, you know, increasing the, right. the monetary supply. Right. But because the banks aren't lending. Right. And they're, and they're not even lending to one another. Right. Because banks, sorry to interrupt, just yeah, to yeah. clarify for some people who may not know, yeah. banks don't have much in the way of deposits right. compared to their potential liabilities. And one of the ways they manage this is to give one another money right. overnight, all yep. the time, every minute, actually. Yes. Right? Yeah. So one of the big things that the bailout changed on the eve of the financial meltdown, the, um, the banks had about $30 billion in reserve because a lot of what the various forms of the financial derivatives were, were to increase the leverage and therefore reduce the actual amount of money that banks had to hold. And so a lot of these instruments, collateralized debt uh, obligations, mortgage-backed securities, were about creating a kind of uh, spectral relationship between what was actually in the, in the vault, right? Um, and that, 
then enhance the capacity to continue expanding the terms of credit and the circulation of money and therefore the extension of, of loans. The bailout comes along, the banks receive this money. Within 18 months, they have a trillion and a half dollars in their reserves. They're just declining. To, to do place, anything with it. To do anything with it. So, <laughs> so that's, you know, it's a, it's, a pub, it's a massive transfer from public to private coffers without any um, uh, governance role. You know, the United States government bought stock but abdicated having any kind of governance role. In the purchase of that, in, in, the, in what was done with that stock, so this is a kind of incredible situation where you have a massive presence of the government without any um, any obligations or responsibility of, of governance. And I would say that what fascinates me is, therefore, it's it's trying to shift away from population and claims that population can make towards the, the kind of the interest of capital as such. Randy. Where does democracy fit into this? Because one of the things that strikes me is that a lot of the rhetoric of neoliberalism, neoclassicism, is that it is re-empowering ordinary people so that their choice becomes important. Right. But that this often has to be done against their will. Mm -hmm. Because if they dare to express their will politically, mm -hmm. in all kinds of ways, but even in a conventional liberal democratic manner yep. via representative government, then unfortunately that's irrational. Right. Absolutely. Because they're not operating as consumers, they're operating as special interests. Yep. Yep. How on earth are, are these flips, going so, back to dance moves, achieved? And what can we do, in a sense, to point out the contradictions in our post-Krugman New York Times column? Yep, absolutely. So, you know, the 1950s model of Robert Dahl was that of pluralism, and he looked at, if you will, kind of U.S. village life to show that uh, even if there was economic inequality, there was political equality because there were different interest groups that all could exert some influence on policy. So subsequent uh, political scientists like Larry Bartels have, uh, uh, have shown that indeed that kind of pluralist compact has come undone. And even people who believed in it, like Charles Lindblom, came to see yep. that um, now that I've said this for 30 years and looked around and seen how the decisions favor particular groups, they actually only favor one group. Yes, indeed. Anyway, yeah. indeed. Sorry. And if, you know, if basically in every presidential electoral cycle, the amount of money spent to get people elected has doubled. So you have this perverse situation where you have um, a, a public resource, right, bandwidth, gets leased to private companies, right, and then... And then um, the campaign, democracy, consists of fundraising to try and, and uh, rent back some of that public uh, resource. Uh, so if that's the political economy of democracy, one could see why, um, you know, if you've you only got so many lunches during the week, there's only certain people you can have lunch with. And indeed, I mean, I think that, that you know, we see this in the form of the super PAC, right, where, where it's... This is the political action committee. Uh, we have listeners... I should say, in 50 countries mm. each week. And 50% of the audience is outside the US. So a lot of the things we're talking about, people will be familiar mm, with. Yeah. Uh, it's possible that PACs may not be. And these things are basically fundraising entities for US politicians. Yes. And specifically, the super PACs are means of ensuring that former attempts to limit 
the participation of corporations and, and put financial limits on what can be given as well. So the kind of entity that can give the money should be a person and the amount of money should be within the reach of an ordinary person. That's all been swept away right. by the Supreme Court through the, the permission of the generation of these things called super political action committees, which essentially are part of a long process in the court's history of endowing corporate entities with personhood. Absolutely. Right. And, and so now I think with the with that Supreme Court ruling, that further extension of the of the corporate entity is that um, money becomes a form of speech. Right. So the logic of the super PAC is that um, even though it's coming from one particular individual, Adelson, for example, who's a casino owner and, and real estate mogul, has single-handedly uh, kept Newt Gingrich in the Republican um, uh, primary. Um, the idea is that the that if, if money is speech, more money means more speech. And so this is a celebration of freedom, which is the version of democracy, I think, that is being touted. So you get, you have on the one hand um, the sense that um, democracy is about this uh, articulation of voice, right, and therefore you need a means to articulate it, but it's also about the, the kind of modelings, right? So all of the, um, rather, rather than, uh, you get this after Karl Rove, uh, who is um, uh, George Bush's strategist. Rather than having a one mass form, you really are having what, what he called wedge issues, which I would say are really following this derivative logic. That is to say, of trying to break up the mass into small, leverageable, uh, particular interests that you can mobilize around, which produce volatility. And I think it's, it's interesting, if you look at the party affiliation of U.S. voters, you'll, you'll see that, that um, first of all, the, the plurality of voters are independents, and the Republicans swing from being about in the low 20s to the low 30s. Uh, so there's enormous volatility of affiliation um, that is driven, I would say, by the, the, the sense that there's not a clear kind of representation of interest that gets translated, which was the basis of the pluralist uh, political claim, right? That people bore these interests inside them, you know, they went to their representatives who gave voice to them, and it was just a kind of balancing act. So if instead politics, politicians work as more like arbitrage, where you exploit minor differences that you observe in a field and try and leverage them to certain kinds of outcomes. And then, of course, that's called risk management in financial fields. But in the case of politics, it would mean uh, actually producing the risk, producing the volatility that then you reap the benefits of. And I think that's the only way of understanding the Republicans who you know, hover between a fifth and a quarter of the electorate having such disproportionate influence. Uh, I think the other t interesting kind of financial trope is that you get in the figure of the Tea Party, what's in finance is called shorting, right? Betting that something's going to fail or, or go down in price. Uh, and so, in a sense, the logic of the Tea Party is to short government as an idea. Um, well, surely a, a, a very crucial thing there. When we get a, get a moment, could I have some more water in the Absolutely. tea, please? Thank you. That's uh, another thing there, of course, is the question of participation. Mm. That there is, it is very much in the Republicans' interest to minimise cephalogical numbers, mm -hmm. uh, get as few people voting as humanly possible, right. have them voting from one particular interest group, as it were. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's difficult to speak in national terms about the United States, mm -hmm. as it is with really any federal structure, but mm -hmm. especially one with as many federal 
East bits as our country has. But, you know, roughly, uh, you have, you're meant to have one party that's the party of capital, one that's mm -hmm. the party of labour. Mm -hmm. That's no longer true. You have mm -hmm. fractions of capital and fractions of labour on both sides. Mm -hmm. But you have a, a party of labour that has uh, colluded in the deindustrialization of the country and has not bothered to meet the interests of those workers who are you know, white males who've mm -hmm. lost out on that and has not bothered to participate in with and represent the interests of those post-industrial workers who are women and minorities and mm -hmm. immigrants who have taken their place in the labor market. And on the other side, you have a group that has taken up the cudgels of the threatened white man of the working class. Mm -hmm. Um, some of this is about urbanism and ruralism, some of it is about education and lack of education, mm -hmm. and some of it is, is about different fractions of finance capital. You know, you look at the, the map of uh, Midtown Manhattan and see who gives to the Republicans and who gives to the Democrats, and Uptown and, and you know, the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side are pretty split. Uh, they're all very wealthy, they're all in finance capital, right. but they work for different firms, right? right? So it's, I'm speaking so much so that Randy can finish his bagel, by the way, in case anybody's wondering why this lecture's taking so long. But it seems to me that, that part of this is about trying on both sides, and the Republicans have done it more effectively, to limit participation by various groups. Right. To limit coverage, thank you very much, sir, of various groups, mm -hmm. and encourage participation by others. So you want to make sure that immigrants and people from the working class who are uh, have been part of the prison industrial complex are not in a position to vote yep. and you want to make sure that people who do not believe that the real political economy is much affected by how they vote will do so based on so-called cultural issues, right. namely their hatred of the other. Yep. That's right. So, you know, just so specifically, Obama is able to mobilize um, a 58% voter turnout in 2008 which is about 10% higher than the turnout that Bush is able to limit. Right. So when, when sees even in those terms, you know, what, what some of the impact is. So I think, you know, there, there's a, um, a claim that people vote against their own interests. Uh, but I think uh, it's more intriguing to look at what are all the, the mechanisms for the limitation. Who's allowed to vote? Who's allowed to vote, what the logics of voting are, you know, um, what becomes legible in representation. And I think this then also lends itself to this, this notion that there's some kind of um, uh, uh, crisis of democracy because on the one hand, people have unrealistic expectations that can't be met. And on the other hand, they don't really care. They've lost their civic interests. They've lost their, um, their concern about political outcomes. And I think, you know, the, the evidence of social movements is the opposite that uh, there's actually been um, a 50% increase of participation in social movements from the beginning of the, of the 1960s to the present. It's true that there's not a, a single uh, unifying mobilization uh, that people move in and out of many, many different kinds of articulations, but I'd have, you'd have to say if you look, um, just as in the case of finance, uh, there's not an absence or a scarcity of wealth, there's a superabundance of it, and the question is what to do with it, and it's being presented to us in the aggregate with that question. You know, if you had um, $14 trillion, what exactly would you like you do? to do? And, and similarly, you know, how do you make alliances uh, within political parties that will cover these very different mm -hmm. social movement Absolutely. connections and articulations? Right. 
So and it's a the, similar problem, that there's an abundance of politics, there's not a scarcity. Yeah, and the idea that participation is poor is ludicrous unless you measure it by two things, voting mm -hmm. and membership of political parties. In fact, people are signing on to bloody things all the time. Right. Um, Anthony Giddens, author of the remark in 2007 about Gaddafi's regime that one day we may think of Libya as the Norway of the 21st century, <laughs> was, however, capable of some good statements, one of which was, the United States may be the only country in the world that has too much civil society. <laughs> right. And of course, in terms of a political project, there is a problem with having too much civil society because you want to make sure that you can marshal the resources within a political party as an umbrella in order then to do the work of the political economic fraction that you are serving. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And from the point of view of that coordinating project, this is a, this is a problem. Yeah. Absolutely. Even though it's a foundational myth of the United States, um, and part of its foreign myth really since the Tocqueville. Mm -hmm. uh, people have been talking about the United States as being like this for almost 200 years outside the United States. Right. In admiring ways. Right. right. And of course, I think that the other piece of that Tocquevillian vision um, was the um, precedence for this capacity of a very uh, partial and um, unequal withdrawal from certain kinds of public mandates, government sanctions. Um, so civil society is also the name of that unequal capacity to escape what would be a claim about public needs or public interests um, or you know societal movements. Now, I wonder if in, in the, the maybe 10 minutes left to this, Randy, I could ask you to speak about the re-enchantment, so-called, of modernity mm. via the notion that this is a post-secular age. Mm -hmm. Your view on that and what part, what I call superstition, but other people describe with the R word, has to play yep. in this particular narrative that you've laid out for us. Uh, absolutely. So... You know, I've been giving you a narrative that looks highly rationalist to the extent that it's organized around the figure of risk, right? So risk is this notion that you can take what you don't know and, and turn it into something that's a measurable game. And uh, there may be unequal benefits, but it sort of assumes that it is a, it's a largely epistemic, knowledge-driven enterprise. Where anybody can learn it, yes. theoretically. Yes. You can learn how cable television works. You can learn how to pilot an airplane. Yes. If you wish. It's not secret. It's not sacred. Yeah. It's secular, liberally available knowledge. Exactly. And I think that's where you get the, that, that's the, the contemporary formation of the uh, a reinvention of the Democratic Party around these protocols that are supposedly not along racial lines, they're not along class lines, so it reinscribes this story of mobility. It's just that it also covers the fact that there's been enormous amount of downward mobility, even as there's been certain kinds of quote-unquote post-racial or post-gender or post-sexual upward mobility as well. Um, but the point is, whatever your fate is, it's just a question of the mastery of these techniques. At the same time, risk also has an ontological aspect to it. It's a form, it's not just a way of knowing, it's also a form of being. And it is immediately somatized. If you ask, um, an, if you ask someone who's setting up your investments, well, how much risk can you take? Uh, the answer would be, well, can you sleep at night? 
So I think that opens up the sort of faith-based aspect that runs uh, from uh, finance to religion. Um, and that is this, the, the sense that there is this enormous excess uh, that, um, that knowledge economies uh, can't contain. Uh, it's what Rumsfeld called the unknown unknowns, right? It's what Fisher Black was calling noise. I would say it's also that space within which um, that explosion of faith-based practices. And again, you know, the interesting thing to me about those practices is that, is that they are detectable as a dimension that runs through the whole gamut uh, of, of human experience. And I think you know the same thing with religion. Religion. Um, has just as much rationalist, it's just as much institutionalized, you know, it has all kinds of other articulations that aren't just around the question of, of faith, that is to say, uh, how to deal with what you don't know. I would, I would say to me the secular moment of this is that um, that dialectic between a knowledge, you know, knowledge as mastery and being mastered by what is not known producing all of these um, environments, whether it's terror is precisely that that discourse, right? You, you uh, think you're, you have, you're waging global war on terror, you produce more terror, you know, that was Rumsfeld's anxiety. So that produces a kind of messianic time, an evangelical uh, plea for intervention. That is to say, if the worst case scenario, if apocalypse is always around the corner, then one has to act in the present as if that future was already in, in one's midst. And I think that is very much a, a kind of, um, of a spiritual manifestation, if you will, uh, that haunts any kind of rational action. It's a notion of moral judgment at the heart of things. When you look at the numbers on so-called faith among scientists in the United States, almost no one who's a scientist mm -hmm. is involved in religion at all. Mm -hmm. They seem pretty happy with uncertainty mm -hmm. about the things that can't be known. Uh, these other people are so keen on judgment versus knowledge, it seems to me. It's mm. such a powerful opposition right. in this country. Yep. Even yep. though, of course, power knowledge are not opposed there yep. on the hyphen. Yes. Uh, nevertheless, it's extraordinary how scientists are prepared to drop their judgment yep. based on new information. Absolutely. Um, epistemologically yeah uh, and their ontology is about the triumph of epistemology in the context of empirically observable right entities yeah right? right but there is I would say even there the the question of where the confidence comes that you should continue to drop what you now know in order to make room for what you don't right starts to introduce some kind of friction oh sure I mean right? the absence of history from the periodic table yeah is yeah Yep. Often thought of as the classic of this, and yep. that no one needs to know what is no longer believed, right. even though it might determine how you got here. Right. Right. So I think that it's it's fascinating to me that one of the one of the dispositions that seems to connect both the crisis of finance and the you know I know you've written eloquently on the on the crisis of the humanities uh, is this anxiety around the ephemeral. Right. So both get get uh, seen as things that are opaque, um, uh, uh, ethereal, immaterial. Uh, so the things you would think would make up spirituality, 
are the things that produce that anxiety around judgment. So one of the things that then fascinates me is what is it that produces that preemptive voicing of judgment? Because that's part of what we're talking. You know, you're not. It's not Calvinist. You're not waiting for the life to be over to be able to look back and press add and say, yeah, good, I did it. I have my, I have my objective measure of whether I've been a good boy or a good girl or not. Um, so this this other kind of evangelical disposition towards judgment, and again, you know, you hear the same thing almost across the ideological spec spectrum about the financial crisis. Oh, well, there, you know, it was immoral. Finance doesn't do anything, you know. And again, you could say the same thing about dance, about about the humanities, about academia, about theory. You know, it's this weird thing. We we don't have a way of uh, applying value to it because it's immaterial, um, and, and uh, of course. It's in the name of that immateriality that more and more things are getting materialized, they're getting assigned value, uh, they're having political and economic impact on us. Um, but that weird kind of disconnect uh, in which the, the loss of a means of valuation of the very value forms in our midst produces, I would say, this, this kind of um, voicing of judgment yes. uh, in anticipation of any kind of reconciliation with what the effects have been. Which is, in a weird way, a reinscription of history because these people are invoking origin myths mm. about the source of everything that will ultimately determine if you only follow correctly the guidelines laid down for you right. millennia ago. Right. Uh, will, can have predictive power about who will... This is Calvinistic in a sense, right. I mean, who will survive and who will not. Right. And it is that strange mixture of predestination and judgment based on how you comport yourself. Right. Yep. I mean, that is there, I think. Yes. In certain ways. Yep. But I think, you know, to go back to your observations about that, that, uh, that Keynesian turn, it still, it carried with it a certain universalism, right? The, the logic of development was that if you accept that you're a child, you countries, and accept that we're your, your future, we're your father, and you will imitate us along the road to development, um, everything will be fine, there's enough room. For everybody to develop. So now, clearly, with the the various decompositions of, of of whiteness, of professional managerial class, of knowledge-based economy, of of the sense of affluence, of progress, um, something has to compensate for this anxiety that the future is not larger than the present. And I think that. Um, the other thing that strikes me as really interesting is then this shift from the center, the idea of a middle as the orientation, to the outlier, you know, the star, the celebrity, um, uh, uh, the exceptional case, right? These are all the kinds of um, figures of identification, which are also in certain ways messianic, right? You'd have to ask why would people have such investments in such exceptional uh, figures and how does this replace the notion that there's a capacious middle that's indefinitely expanding. Well, Randy Martin, thank you so much for joining us in the pod today. I want to extract a promise from you, if I may, that when this next book comes out, you'll come back into the pod and tell us more about it when it's reached its fullest form. <laughs> Thanks so much, Toby, for the opportunity, and may the pod always be with you. <laughs>